to do it. It's wonderful, but I also sometimes wonder um, what's next. Well, I suspect most of you know of a little book from the 1960s called by P.D. Eastman, um, Where Is My Mother? Where are you, my mother? And I didn't, the title's not even right. Where is my mother? Which is the plot. Are you my mother? And in the, in the little book, there's a hatchling, there's an egg, and the mother has left the egg to go out and get food. And the bird, the hatchling, hatches and doesn't know where its mother is. And so it jumps and leaves the nest and goes looking for its mother and asks this question, are you my mother? Thank you. And he goes to a kitten and a dog and a cow, and you can imagine this journey going looking for his mother. And in the final scene, I think it's a, um, a front loader or a backhoe, uh, Caleb may know, that um, exca excavator picks up a little bird and, and drops it in the nest at where its mother comes back, and he finds his mother. And what's intriguing about the story is not simply uh, the longing for the mother, but that the bird, until he sees his mother, does not know that he's a bird. Because he's asking all these other animals. And so there is something mysterious about this. There is something in human life that we often refer to theologically as personhood. It's when I meet another person that I discover that I'm a person. And so the bird doesn't know he's a bird until he's met his mother. And I draw on this little story to lead us into Paul in Ephesians, thinking about sanctification, about you and I becoming these creatures of redemption, these blessed sons of God in light. Now, uh, David and Seth, and Chris no doubt too, would, would have lured me into preaching on Amos today, in chapter 7, but I'm too quick for that. Amos is a, is a mess. The prophets are. It's poetry, there's fruit baskets and plumb lines, and um, there's no quotation marks in Hebrew, so you don't actually know where the speech begins and where it ends. So um, I'll leave Amos to the side, except for this, that in the book of Amos, as in all of the prophets, there is somewhere at the beginning, middle, or end, the statement that Israel has been plucked up to be sent into punishment because they have abandoned their identity. They have forgotten their mother. They don't know who they are. So God picks Israel up and puts them in Babylon and Assyria. But in Amos, you hear these words that he will bring them back and replant them. And you jump ahead to chapter 9 and he says, I will again plant the house of David and it will be a fruitful vine and the reaper shall overtake the sower. And wine, sweet wine, will roll down from the mountains. God will again make his people right, but in the book of Amos, as in all the prophets, they have lost their way of sanctification and of holiness. And so God sets about to purge them. Well, in Ephesians, we begin today five or six weeks of reading. And Paul, in many ways, is trying to help us in this church in Ephesus discover our humanity, to do what the mother could do for the little bird, to show us who we are, to sanctify us. In these opening verses that James read for us today, he says, before the foundations of the world, you were predestined to be holy and blameless before him. God has had a plan for every single one of us 
from before all time. And he longs to bring that into fruition like he did for Israel when he brought them back from exile. You have been blessed. You have been for all time. He's desired to make you lovely. And he's called you as saints, holy ones. And so we're invited into that sanctifying process that we call sanctification or discipleship more broadly. We're journeymen, we're journeywomen, we're on a road like a little bird, coming to find who we will fully be in the fullness of time. And Paul goes on and he adds this metaphor to it. He says, you have been adopted as sons in love through Christ Jesus, and you have stored up for you an inheritance immeasurable, immortal, perfect. So Paul goes about this process, notice this, of sanctification, of calling us into holiness, to be good disciples who grow by calling us to imagine what we're destined for. There's a hope laid up for us. And discipleship, sanctification, begins with contemplation. By thinking on what you've been made to be. I want to peel this back a little bit, and maybe David and I, weeks ahead, will explore more in Ephesians. But in chapter 1, this vision that Paul is calling us to, and first of all, I want to look into the way that you and I discover our new old self. He says in chapters 2 and 3, as he goes on and he begins to call us to works, he says that um, put off the old, he uses this language in his epistles, and put on the new. But the new we're putting on is that self from before the foundations of the earth. I'm going to clothe you the way I always intended to clothe you. And I'm going to involve you in the process. Put on the new old self. There's a, a coincidental moment we're in now. Um, some call it expressive individualism or the identity culture, the identity age. I suspect that's what we'll call it in years ahead. This call for us to know our identity, to declare our identity. And there's something there I've tried to emphasize that's absolutely right on. Who doesn't want to know who their mother is? Who doesn't want to know that they're a human being or a bird? There is something about us that God wants to show us. And there is something we should absolutely affirm about this journey to discover who we are. Only the culture will lead us astray in this, that they will have us go look inward to find ourselves. And Paul, very interestingly, says, you will find it in Christ. Christ in you, you in him. In these first 14 verses, Paul uses this phrase, in him, or in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, 15 times. If that were a student paper, it would be turned back. Paul, this is unnecessarily redundant. In him, in his blood, in Christ Jesus. There's something absolutely magnificent here. God himself became flesh so that you could look at him and know who you are. To be a Christian, to find your identity, to be a disciple, is to gaze intently at Jesus, at his works, at his power, 
that's at work within you, Paul says. To find ourselves, we must go inward to find Christ there. And so this journey for us to find the new self is a contemplative one. And most of us, if you're like me, have spent very little time this week contemplating the riches of the inheritance stored up for us in Christ. I um, caution myself, I exhort myself as I exhort you, if we don't spend time contemplating Christ within us, that deep regard, awareness of who you are, then you won't begin to grow as a disciple. You have to invest. Paul spends this whole first chapter before he asks us to do anything, pray and Bible reading and scripture memory, before he asks us to do anything, he spends a whole chapter in contemplation. And not simply in contemplation, but in prayer. Where James stopped reading, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, because of all this stuff Christ has given you, I bow my knees to the Father in thanksgiving and pray. For what? That you'll know it. That you'll contemplate it, he says. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the inheritance of his glorious grace in the heavenlies. I pray that you would sit and think for a moment on what will blow your mind. Paul says, love that surpasses all knowledge. To be disciples, to know your true self, requires us to sit. I give you a minute to think about that discipline. Where in your day will you do that? To know the hope, to have the eyes of your heart enlightened, this mixed metaphor. To overflow like Paul does with joy and hope and thanksgiving for what he has made us in Christ. This journey of discovering our new selves is a purging process. For me to discover myself means that some of the things that I have stacked up for myself, for myself and for ourselves, will have to go if I'm going to be like Christ. And I've done it. You know, we've got educations and clothes and hobbies and automobiles or sports teams that we sticky note on ourselves because we want to know who we are for goodness sakes. And we grasp things because we want some kind of identity. And to know the one whom Christ has made within us, we will have to let go. This beautiful pairing with John the Baptist. For John the Baptist to be John the Baptist was to have to go. It was to have to surrender his life for the sake of his calling. What a stark reminder in the midst of Paul's excitement because he too will have to be killed. Discipleship is costly. But Paul is full speed ahead, as is John, because they know, because they have spent the time in contemplation to know this self, this person that I grasp to, that's the only thing I know, I will have to let go and allow Christ to make himself in me. So first, there is a new old self that's being sanctified, and Paul will unfold that 
in coming chapters in Ephesians. Second, that new self will emerge in good works. Amy and I met in campus ministry in college, and our campus ministry was known for its spiritual disciplines. We knew to have our daily quiet time, to memorize scripture, to evangelize, to pray. And we had all these things that we would do, and the holy people in our community were the ones with all of those verses memorized, who were at Bible study early every Sunday morning. We did. We had a Bible study called the Ungodly Hour Bible Study at 7 a.m. And we would meet, and you'd be there if you were a disciple. And those things, good as they are, are not discipleship. See, Paul spends a whole chapter on the contemplative side. He doesn't want us to get stirred up doing all this holy stuff that people will say, look at that holy praying person. The person who knows Christ will overflow with joy. And there's that investment in who we are. We will then give way to good works. Ephesians 2. For he created you. He switches from the metaphor of adoption to the metaphor of creation. He created you from the beginning of time for good works that you may walk in them. We're ten verses into the second chapter before Paul tells us to do anything. Because he wants you to know what has been done within you and for you and what is laid up for you. And that depth of knowledge that Paul prays for can't help but do good works. One writer that we read for confirmation, uh, Archbishop Lillian Williams says this, he says, the love of God is not the activities themselves. It is that deep, contemplative awareness of God everywhere within me and around me that gives way to love of neighbor and of prayer. It ought to flow from the contemplative life, from the awareness of what Christ has done in you. Chapters 2 through 6, Paul is going to tell us things to do. But do not go there until we have spent the time in contemplation. Third, in these later chapters, we'll find that discipleship is not American individualism. Discipleship is communal. It's a body. Chapter 4, he has given every one of you gifts for... Ephesians 4.12, can anybody complete that? For the building up of the body. You and I are beautiful threads, but we are threads in a weave. And the weave is ours, and we belong to it. And to the degree that I am weak, the weave suffers. You know, discipleship is responsibility to community. And we are given ourselves to be disciples with one another to the degree that the weave is strong. I am strengthened. Paul will spend most of the letter there on how to build up this community after the contemplative side. I worship on Sunday. I come early. I pray so that I might build up the weave and so that the weave might build me up and I might be strengthened. Discipleship is family. It is community. It is a body. It is a temple that we invest in together. I'll leave us to future chapters uh, in coming weeks, but I'll want to pause for the moment and acknowledge what I hope is a question you have, too. Why do I see no progress in my discipleship? Why don't I look any holier than I did 30 years ago when I started doing 
disciple-making activities. I, I, there are sins I have improved on. There are things I do better. I pray more. I'm a more grateful person, I think. But it doesn't take an hour or two into the day then some weed of sin shows its face. Some moment of impatience, some moment of ingratitude, of anger, of pride, just stares you in the face and you think, my God, where have I come to? C.S. Lewis wrote on this, we all know that book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And so C.S. Lewis wrote a poem called The Pilgrim's Problem. I think to address this very thing, he says, when we think of our grown discipled self and we come to maturity in Christ, he says, I imagine a warm, sunny afternoon, a supreme stage of life, majestic, majestic rivers of charity, forests of contemplation, mists of chastity, this beautiful self that has emerged. But then he says, I can see nothing like this at all when I look at the map. Was the map wrong? Maps can be wrong. But the experienced walker knows that the other explanation is often true. That in the process of discipleship, we will find our progress stifled. We will meet disappointment. You know, with age you find, surely I'll be a more seasoned Christian, but memory goes, and when memory goes, anxiety grows. And as age grows, pain comes. And loss comes, which can make for cynicism and bitterness. The discipleship process is this annoying long path at times. And progress may not seem evident. So I take us back to end with chapter 1. That the work of sanctification is not ours. It is Christ within us. Thanks be to God, I don't have to do it. I cooperate, I yield but it is he who sanctifies us. This is why Paul considers it such a great hope for what he has laid up for you in Christ. That as I wake and I find disappointment, I know that he will not let this vessel of clay rot. He will bring to completion what he began in you in Christ. And so we give thanks to God and we ask his help as we grow as disciples and we remember the hope that one day we will see him face to face and we will know him as we are, for we shall be like him. Amen.